The Christian world needs more spirit-filled teaching. So often we have fiery preaching without substance or doctrine without life. But we seek to join the two. We seek to bring theology on fire. This is Andrew Wilkes. This is Leah Wilkes. And this is Theology on Fire. Welcome back, everybody. It's good to be with you again. Today, we are going to be talking about something that from the get-go could sound a bit aloof and not very enticing, but it's going to be infallibility versus inerrancy. And what are those things and what difference on earth do they make? And Andrew's going to get us started here. Right. So sometimes people can be talking and you could, you could really just ask, are you just trying to sound smart? Why are you throwing these words around? But like we've talked about before, this is Theology on Fire, and whenever we talk about theological terms or definitions, we don't want to be fatheads. However, whenever you hang around doctors, they're going to shorten things that they say by using big words. Just because we don't know them does not mean that they're trying to sound smart. It's just because, again, that definition encapsulates maybe two or three sentences of a meaning, but in one word. And that's what we do here. We, we learn what they mean, and we can say a whole lot by saying one to two words. Just to lay a basic foundation, this is something that we have covered before, but, but starting off with 2 Timothy 3.16-17, this is one of the most basic scriptures that all believers should know about the inspiration of the Word of God. And it says in verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's right. So all scripture is breathed out or respiration, right? It's breathing. And so it's inspired inspiration from God. It's coming from his heart out of his mouth to the ears of the listeners, whether they were the apostles or prophets that first wrote down that revelation from the heart of God. So scripture claims about itself in Second Peter 1, 16 to 21, that it's unique. It's not just something that comes from man. Right. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is Peter just reminiscing and reminding people who are going to receive this letter that he wrote to them that, look, I saw Christ transfigured on that mountain with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. I said, oh, this is good that you're here, Elijah and Moses and Jesus, and why don't I build a tabernacle for each of you? But God the Father said, this is my son. Listen to him. So he's saying, I've actually seen the glorified Christ. So what I'm bringing to you is not secondhand knowledge. I've seen him myself. Continuing verse 19, Peter says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, meaning this bringing forth of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the context here is not so much the interpreting of the Scripture we have in our hands, but the speaking forth prophetically of the Word of God as being from God. 
not deriving from man's ingenuity or intelligence or even imagination. So what's interesting here is we're not told in Scripture how God did that. We see, like in the book of Amos, that God spoke to Amos, who was a cattle farmer and also a fig farmer. We are told in the book of Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to me. So we, we don't exactly understand how God made himself known. We are simply told he did make himself known and that the very ones who are speaking on behalf of God knew that it was from God and not of themselves. So Peter's putting himself in that same category as the prophets of the Old Testament. So inspiration, it means that God revealed his truth to his prophets and apostles and worked through these same men to write it down to communicate that truth to others. It was perfect and accurate and understandable. And it was like scripture has said about itself, breathed out by God. We can trust it. It is of him and from him. And you may be asking yourself, well, Andrew, I already know that. Why are you covering this again? Right. This is where it really gets into the meat of infallibility of Scripture versus inerrancy of Scripture. So infallibility of Scripture, the historical meaning, meant that all of Scripture was correct and there were no errors in it. This is what my church statement of faith has whenever it refers to the Bible. It says, we believe the Bible is the inspired and only infallible and authoritative Word of God. And to read more, that's fntchurch.org. But the modern meaning of infallibility, it changed about 50 years ago in the 70s. Here in America, there was a dogfight really about what was inspired. Was it just the rules of faith? Was it just the morals in the Bible that were inspired by God? Or were the matters of science and history also inspired by God? So what we saw, especially at one place called Fuller Seminary, was they backed down and they began to say, you know what? We think that there are some historical issues with the Bible. We think that there are some issues of science in the Bible. So we're going to call this infallible, meaning only faith and morals are inspired by God. So basically what they're saying is, oh, yes, the Bible is inspired. Well, the parts that are inspired are inspired, but there are parts that, you know, they're, it's about science and they're based on like it's supposed to be facts and, you know, there are some errors, as it were. So it's something we want to highlight to you and make you know about because perhaps just in your walk with the Lord, you might meet a fellow Christian who says, oh, yeah, I believe the word of God is inspired. And then they explain that to you, but then they begin to to explain how there are, oh, well, there are parts of the Bible that aren't completely inspired. You know, there there's the inspired Word of God, and then there are these scientific elements or historical things that are not 100% accurate. And, and it would be easy, perhaps, to, to be taken in by that, to think, oh, oh, so the Word of God is inspired, but then it's also not? No, and that's where inerrancy comes in. Right, so then in this big debate, which has really been settled as far as conservative evangelicals are concerned, we now use the word inerrancy, which means all the Bible is inspired by God. Every moral teaching, every scientific claim, and every historical account is accurate within its context, because we also have to remember that these documents were written, these books were written, not to modern Americans, post-Enlightenment society, but pre-Enlightenment society and East, near Eastern. So that means that they do things like rounding up in numbers, which is completely acceptable and we do every day. They may use words like the setting of the sun, which 
we use today. Oh, honey, look at that sunset. Isn't it beautiful? Well, that's actually scientifically inaccurate to say that the sun is setting, but we say it every single day. And I'm pretty sure even Richard Dawkins would call it a sunset and not, oh, look, honey, the earth has revolved around and the sun is no longer visible. (laughs) That's just ridiculous. And so whenever we take the Bible in its context, the right way, using hermeneutics, how we study the Bible, we will see it is inerrant completely. So we can see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We are told here that the inability of God to lie is the very reason that we should cling to the person of Jesus and trust in his salvation. That's right. Our very spiritual lives depend upon God speaking truth, and it being true. So with that said, what do we do with the apparent contradictions in the Bible? (gasps) Andrew, contradictions in the Bible, what are you talking about? Now, I said apparent. That means it appears that way. It doesn't mean that they are real, but at first glance, it would appear that there's a contradiction. Why don't we walk through a few of these And this can actually be kind of fun. So if you like riddles, if you like figuring things out, I think you'll really enjoy this. All right. So riddle number one, as it were. In Chronicles, there are two different versions of a fact about David's dedication at the temple. He gave an amount of gold and there are two different places where it records this and they both say two different amounts but it's the same event it's speaking about did he give 100,000 talents of gold or 3,000 that is quite a different number right 100,000 or 3,000 okay so in first chronicles 22:14 it says indeed i have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the lord 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver, etc. So he says here, I've prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold. Well, that's clear. It says it right there. So what's the deal? Right. But then in First Chronicles 29, we see in verses 3 to 4, he says, Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, etc. Wait, so one says 100,000 and the other says 3,000, like you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So apparently we would have a contradiction here. And, you know, we should just throw the whole Bible out, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's what some people would say. Well, see, you can't trust your Bible. But if we slow down here and we look at that first scripture, it says, I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold. And then in the second scripture, it says, over and above all that I have prepared. So what he had prepared was 100,000 in the first statement. The second statement says, over and above all that I've prepared from my own treasure, I've given 3,000. So I've not given 100,000 or 3,000. I've given 103,000 and 3,000 was from my own wealth. Right. And you could say, well, okay, what is the point in that example? But this is something people would trip up over. And it's a great example for our own selves of why we need to read slowly. This is good hermeneutics, as it were. Right. We need to rightly interpret the Bible. We need to take our time. We need to not rush. And if we don't understand something, we don't need to 
panic. Don't panic. Right. It's take a wait and see attitude of if everything else is true and something like this, a small number, I can relax. I'll find out what it means. Right. So that was number one. Moving on to number two. Now we're going to look at the book of Matthew and the book of Acts. And it's about how Judas, the disciple Judas, died. And there are two different accounts of this. And did Judas die by hanging or by falling on rocks? Matthew says that Judas hung himself. However, the book of Acts says he fell and his body burst open on some rocks. So, Andrew, what do we do with that? Well, uh, there's something called harmonization, which simply means that it's not two separate stories. It's two perspectives of the same story. So in Matthew 27, 5, it says, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the other one, Acts 1, 18, says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. It's completely understandable that he hung himself, the rope broke, he fell down, his midsection burst open, uh, and some, many scholars believe actually what happened is he hung himself over a cliff, and that's why he fell down with such force that when he hit the rocks, he burst open. Right, so again, nothing to get hung up about, nothing that affects our doctrine, easily harmonized. And someone may say, but that's too easy, but listen, do you really just want to disprove the Bible? Is that your goal? Because if it's a true story, it'll have a true explanation. So really, the motives of the person are in question. And again, it goes back to hermeneutics, how you interpret the scripture. Because remember, Matthew was written to Jewish people. And Jewish people, when a person was hung, it was said in the book of Moses, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he was speaking to a Jewish audience about the cursed state of Judas. The last one here, and this one's going to be a little tricky, so if you want to pause this and actually look for yourself, whatever Bible version that you're using, it will say this. So the problem is this. In 1 Chronicles 4 and 2 Chronicles 9, one says that Solomon had 40,000 stalls, and the second verse says that he only had 4,000 stalls for his chariots and horses. So which one of these is right, and why is there a difference? In 1 Kings 4.26, it says Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. But then in 2 Chronicles 9.25, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So, Leah, what is the difference between 4,000 and 40,000? A lot. Right. But more specifically, a single zero, Right. Correct. So when you add another zero, you go from 4,000 to 40,000. So that is simply a copyist error. What we have to remember is in our hands, we hold copies of the original documents. We, the very originals, were the ones that were inspired by God. And we have copies of those. Mm -hmm. So in the Hebrew language, it says here the visual difference between the two numbers is very slight. They don't use vowels in Hebrew, at least in ancient Hebrew. And so the consonants for the number 40 are RBYM. The consonants for the number four are RBH. So the scribe may have had a smudged or damaged uh, manuscript there. So it's, that's really not a big issue. Right. It's the difference of one letter. And so that brings us into a field of study called, and here's another big word, but I'm just throwing it out there, textual criticism. And what that means is we look at all of the manuscripts about all of the Older New Testament 
and all of the languages as far back as we can go. And we don't criticize the Bible. It criticizes us. But we look with a critical or careful eye at what the earliest and best manuscripts had to say. So if you have something like a King James, which we preach from at our church, and I love dearly, it's a great translation. But if you have that, there's not a footnote there. But I teach now from the ESV, and you will see a footnote. But whatever we've translated from into the English more recently, it had that small, tiny discrepancy. But is that some error? No, not really. That's a small discrepancy. That does not mean that the Bible is inaccurate. The fact that we can even identify that tells us we're very secure in what we have in our hands. At the end of the day, we have so many, many different manuscripts of the scriptures. We have found so many, and they are still finding different manuscripts. We have a wealth of resources open and available to us. During the time of the King James, whenever it was translated from the Greek text, the person who translated that Greek text or compiled this Greek text from different manuscripts, he had about 10. He didn't have a lot. But now we have over 5,000 manuscripts just for the New Testament alone, whether they're small pieces or full copies. And if anyone would actually want to see these manuscripts, whether they're an atheist, whether they're a committed Christian or a Muslim or whoever, you can actually see a lot of manuscripts online for free. Now, you do have to learn how to read the originals, the Greek, and specifically for the Greek, there is something called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and I will actually put that link in the description. And what they do is they go all over the world whenever people find New Testament manuscripts. They take equipment and they photograph this and they put it online for free so that we can actually see what the Word of God says. So it's very exciting. Really, we've put ourselves out there as believers. We've been out there for years. Now, the Muslims, there was someone who actually uh, gathered together many of the competing Quran portions years ago and burned them all because they wanted to get rid of all discrepancies and only have one version. But even now, we're starting to find and dig up discrepancies within their own book, which they hate. So you might ask, why is this important? You know, I believe God, God's word is God's word. I believe it is breathed out by God. I believe that. I, I know it is. I know him. I've experienced him. And that's all well and good, and we can say that. But these days, we live in a YouTube and Google generation, and people have doubts about the word of God. They have a right to ask us why we think the Bible is the word of God. You know, we can't just expect people to just take our word for it they want to know what is this well how do you even know like somebody just dug up a scroll one day and you believe this was the right thing but we need to be able to or begin to try to be able to defend this great word that we have been given you know the quran it says it's the true word of god for the muslims and what makes us right and them wrong So again, whenever people like Muslims or skeptics are armed against us, if they begin to pick out passages that may not be in the original documents, and we don't know that, and we're not clear on how we even got our Bible, we're in trouble. We lose credibility in their eyes, and our faith can be shaken. But the truth is, we have the Word of God. We are the only ones that could stand up to scrutiny and question. There are not gross errors in our manuscripts. There is not an issue with the Bible I have. The fact that I can even point out the very simple issue is everything, and it's something that they cannot do. 
And please don't get us wrong with this. You know, we know the Bible said it's by the foolishness of preaching that the Lord draws people. You know, it is by the Holy Spirit that people are saved. It is by faith. It is a work of God. It is a spiritual event. We are never going to convince someone into salvation. Never, never, ever. That is not the way that the Lord has designed it to be. It is by faith. But when we are faced with questions, are we going to have some knowledge behind that? Are we going to have answers? Because people are more educated these days. There is so much out there. People can just look up things. And and if you go talk to a Muslim, they're going to know about the, quote, apparent flaws in the Bible. Are you going to be able to combat that? Are you going to be able to answer them back? So our encouragement to you and to ourselves is let's study to show ourselves approved. Let's get lost in the beauty of who the Lord is and in his word that he has given us, which is a sure foundation. Perhaps you still have some questions about something in the Bible. Well, that's okay. We've got a lifetime or until the Lord returns to answer them. So let's not just try to do that on our own, but let us take advantage of the body of Christ. Let's take advantage of those that have worked through these things for us and see if they hold weight. And if so, we have our answers to our questions. And ultimately, let's trust in the person of the Holy Spirit who's committed to us. He's our teacher. He's our guide. And he's our comforter. And he will lead us into all truth. Right. Our faith doesn't rest on having all of our questions answered. Nobody has all their questions answered. We don't have it all together. But if we have a question, it is on us to seek the Lord, to let him answer us. And he said, if you seek me, you shall find me. So if you have a question, search the Bible, ask the people that you know, the Christians that you know, and let the Lord answer you. Lord, we thank you that we can ask you questions. I thank you, Lord, that we can not ha- we don't have to be afraid that you're going to somehow be displeased with us because we have a question about how something fits, how one scripture fits with another. You never, you never reject that, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you. Give us wisdom. We want to come to you and not seek this world's explanations, but from the truth, from the word of God. And it will make sense, and it will be factual because all of your word is because it's true. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for joining us at Theology on Fire. Please subscribe so you won't miss new episodes. All of our information and contact details can be found at theologyonfire.org.